For the next few minutes, I want to tell you something of the story of the way I was not only introduced to this love, but captured by it by degrees by Christ crucified through my complete failure to observe his three great commandments of love. Love God, love the neighbor, and love the enemy, and who continually shows me that what is impossible for me is possible for God. Now, it begins uh, in the story of the time I almost killed my father. Um, and, and just to uh, introduce you to the uh, dramatis personae here, uh, that is uh, usually, you know, I uh, all my relationships with my therapists in the past several years have gotten off to a good start by simply introducing the first session by saying, my father was a general and my mother was a colonel. Um, which is true. And here they are in China, about to get on the plane uh, into, uh, you know, this wonderful future. They were madly in love. Uh, they were, uh, he was a young 36-year-old uh, Brigadier General. He uh, was on the way to a magnificent uh, career. Um, and, uh, and she as well, in her own way. Um, Many years later, it was not so good. This is um, this is next picture. Is them going up the steps of the Elysee Palace uh, in uh, 1962 or so. Um, you can tell it's pure elegance, uh, and uh, and they are not happy. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. My father was a broken man. He drank uh, very heavily. Uh, he uh, had multiple relationships with different women, much to my mother's uh, distress. And uh, finally, when he uh, was forced into retirement because of his drinking, having uh, run the air war in Vietnam for uh, five years, he, uh, he lived uh, by himself. And, uh, and I was... Uh, in boarding school at the time, and I sort of came down and was juggled back and forth between their two houses, uh, one in Chevy Chase and one in Arlington, and uh, it was always the same uh, drill. Don't get me wrong, I really, uh, I love my dad. Oh, this is me, by the way. Yeah. It's one of the few pictures of me smiling. I think I, I was really angry for most of uh, my childhood, which really worked for me because I, um, you know, my, I had this vein right here which would just sort of threaten to explode and my mother was so worried by it that she gave me anything I wanted, which um, I, and, and made me the man I am today. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I also adored my father. I mean, I worshipped him, really. I was scared to death of him, but uh, as you can see, that's me about um, 13 years 14 years later. Uh, catch the, uh, <laughs> yeah. I love the cigarette and the glasses, you know, held down <laughs> for this official photograph. But I think you can see that, uh, you know, I would have done anything for the old man. Um, on this particular night, he was, uh, we, or morning rather, we were headed to breakfast uh, at Marriott, which was his preferred choice of going out. He was uh, broken and raging, and it was all my mother's fault, and he was picking at me, and which he frequently did, and as I say, he was already drunk. Uh, and we, instead of taking the elevator, went to the back stairs of his apartment house, which were a huge cement flight of stairs with 
uh, steel, corrugated steel treads on the noses of them. And as we were about to head down, he suddenly wheeled on me and just began spluttering with rage. And, uh, and I remember looking at him as this inarticulate gibberish sort of came out of his mouth and I saw the hate in his eyes and I thought, you know, I could end this right now. Uh, and saw the stairs and realized as I took his arm that all I would have to do is nudge him. And he would go down those steps like a sack of potatoes and both of us would be out of our misery. And for reason that I can only ascribe to the sovereign grace of God, I didn't do it. Instead, I took his arm and I shook it gently and I said, Pa, Pa, stop it. Let's just go downstairs. And he suddenly came back into focus and we went downstairs. Now, by the time that we got to the bottom of the steps, I was just sad, frankly. I wanted to be anywhere else. But we still held on to each other. And later that night, I couldn't go to sleep, but I kept thinking, what is this? What stopped me? It was only years later I understood it was love that stopped me. Not my own love, mind you. I guarantee you that. But something acting from outside me, or rather from so deeply within me, that I couldn't claim any credit for it. It wasn't a decision. It didn't involve any emotion on my part. It didn't require me to marshal anything or to create anything. It just required assent, and a pretty mild assent at that. It kept my father alive and kept me from being a murderer and opened the possibility that our relationship did not always have to be what it was in that terrible moment. Love stopped sin and death in that moment and opened a way to something beyond. Now, I say it was years later that I understood this, but maybe not many years. I was a young man by then, in my early 20s. I had uh, what I thought was some experience in love, he says. <laughs> it had not gone well. <laughs> I mean, if I look at my mind and my body as a sack of thoughts, emotions, and impulses, I would say love was in there somewhere, but it was, you know, pretty much mixed up with desire, sex, ambition, longing, sex, restlessness. Did I say sex? <laughs> and especially the two dominant needs of my psyche, which were to think well of myself and to have others think well of me. And if those are the two things that you at one time have been most concerned with, self-approval and the approval of others, then you, like me, probably also found or find self-love, and the love of others becomes almost impossible. That's the great paradox. I discovered um, in this romantic relationship that I uh, contracted with a, a woman who is presently in the room, we're married, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to say up front, work out fine, right? That, uh, that as I, we tr tried to work on this, I didn't, it became clear to me I didn't have any of the virtues that I thought I had. It seemed we were always fighting. 
And I was pretty good at blaming her for most things that went wrong in the relationship, but I discovered you can only do that for so long before the other person gets tired of it, or you do, or both. Um, the problem, though I didn't know it at the time, was that even though I had had that brush with love, my life was mainly controlled by what I would call wrath. My wrath. Human wrath. I want to suggest is an inverted mirror of divine wrath. Embrace yourself for a little theology, all right? But God's wrath is the outbreak of God's love in the form of judgment against the sin and brokenness of the creation, a judgment that demands sacrifice. Human wrath is a response to this phenomenon. It's an attempt to atone for guilt by actually sidestepping responsibility by placing the burden for my sin on someone else and offering them as a whole burnt offering in my place without actually admitting that's what I'm doing. Do you get the idea here? Remember the question yesterday about the division in this country and how people are sort of despised and hated? Well, that is actually what we are doing, projecting the darkness within upon an external object. And whether you side with Melanie Klein and call it projective identification from a psychoanalytic point of view, or you want to take a philosophical point of view and uh, you know jump in with uh, Rene Girard and, oh yes, St. Paul, uh, and uh, talk about it as um, you know, um, mimetic rivalry uh, or uh, a violent sacrifice, the uh, object is the same. The objective is to get the benefits of sacrifice without genuine recognition of the sin that demands that sacrifice. It's sort of like driving the scapegoat, Azazel, into the wilderness while maintaining in the end that it was all the goat's fault anyway. <laughs> so I didn't know that's what I was doing in this relationship any more than I knew that what lay at the bottom of this mirror, deep in the glass, as it were, was not so much guilt as grief. All of the ways I had run from myself in pursuit of some grandiose vision of who I was to become the great poet, actor, and playwright I knew was in me, and to sacrifice love to achieve all that, that bargain was coming unraveled. Which meant I needed Azazel all the more. Sorry, Betty. Here again, the problem with sidestepping responsibility and projecting it onto others is that you never get to grieve the loss of the thing that your sin costs you, whether it's actual sin or your share in original sin, the sin of all humanity. The loss of the world that might have been, you don't get to grieve, that could have been, that would have been, had you not been so stupid and so selfish. And until you own it, then the grief just sits there in your gut like a dark ocean, and wrath becomes a way of treading water, barely keeping your head above the abyss. It works, but yes, it's exhausting. So all of that to say that what I saw in the mirror of my relationship with this young woman was not very lovable. I discovered I was short-tempered, pompous, easily offended, proud, aimless, and on some level I did not want to look at deeply hurt. 
Now, one saving grace was that I had been, thanks to my mother, raised Episcopalian. She, she did drag us, my brother and I, uh, me to church uh, every Sunday, and whether we wanted to or not, we uh, absorbed a lot of the teaching. So I knew the church, and I suspected the promise of the church, even if I didn't know the teaching of the church. So when I started getting depressed, which was pretty much what happened, I was angry until I came to understand the secret of depression. And, uh, and then I started wandering into churches in Manhattan. This is where we lived, by the way, 7th Street and 1st Avenue in a fifth floor walk up. It was such a deal. Um, and there I kept hearing again and again phrases I recognized, particularly the opening of the communion service. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ saith, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And I heard it, and I heard it, and I left, and I came back. And the more I heard it, the more I realized at one time I did love God. Because I remember hearing my mother loving God and singing the canticles. And so I kept showing up at church and listening. It seemed like nowhere was safe. Sooner or later, I was just going to keep running into this. One of the places where I wandered into, incidentally, was Grace Broadway, uh, where uh, Paul Zoll and Jim Monroe were teamed up together with all these, you know, 20-something kind of artists and folks, and I was coming back from work, and of course I was late, because that's just what happens. I'm late, always, except the liturgies. That's how you know I'm a Catholic. Um, it's, uh, but, you know, there it was, and I listened to Jim and Paul teach uh, in this, and it made absolutely no sense whatsoever, but I found something profoundly attractive about it. And then in that moment, uh, we all stood and we sang a hymn, uh, which was, uh, My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless, shown that they might lovely be. And uh, by the end of it, I was in tears, and I realized I had heard my story. And if I could just run away, maybe things would be all right. But every time I did, I kept showing up at church again. It was usually at noon in the Eucharist, and I would just stand at the back of the church uh, at Transfiguration. You want to talk about the other end of Episcopal churchmanship, you know, but there was east facing with the elevations and bells and everything. And I would stand there at the back and I would say, you know, I don't believe that, I don't believe that, I don't believe that, and thinking myself safe. And then the priest would stand and lift the host and, and chalice and say, the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And it was as though something grabbed me in the middle of the chest and pulled me forward. I didn't think of this force as Jesus. I certainly didn't think of it as Father, but this who, which is what it was, was magnetically and irresistibly drawing me to kneel before whom, and often I said under my breath, if you were there, feed me. And the who always did. 
And I always went away carrying something strange, a sort of peace. And when that happened, I recognized it was the same thing drawing me to the rail, to the sacrament, that had pushed my hand towards my father at the top of the stairs. That thing that moved me towards my dad was now moving me towards himself. But it wasn't an it. It wasn't a what. This was a who. And I knew it. And I feel at this point, there should be a slide with Horton, here's a who. <laughs> Dorsey, here's a who. So the words that I heard so frequently at communion, loving God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, uh, just kept flooding back into me. And I went back into the language of the church to learn what this love was about and how I might begin to do it. And and the songs were part of it, and the great poets of the church were a part of it, and the liturgy was a part of it. I had a special uh, closeness to John Donne, who was that great dean of St. Paul's, who had no interest whatsoever in becoming a minister at all, was a, uh, an extraordinarily attractive uh, poet and diplomat, and indeed possessed all of those things that I hoped one day to possess, including irresistible attraction to women. And, and, uh, and there he was with you know his, his poetry, which is very uh, sort of gritty and earthy and erotic, as he uh, talks about in his first period, as he talks about uh, women and uh, beds them successively. And then, uh, and then he makes the supremely unwise decision of contracting a secret marriage with the daughter of his patron. And when her father finds out, she, he is so enraged that the two of them are disowned. And he throws himself on the mercy of the court. And according to one story, the king says to him, he will grant Mr. Don no preferment except by holy orders. <laughs> and Don said, Majesty, um, that's OK. I, I don't believe anything. And the king is reputed to have said, we expect thee to see to this prior to thy ordination. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and as I read that, the poems which Dunn wrote afterwards, I began to see that this was a man who was smarter than I would ever be, and, uh, and had a faith in the cross nowhere perhaps more explicitly stated that in the last stanza of his brilliant poem, Hymn to God, My God, and My Sickness, in which he looks at his own mortal weakness and says, uh, so in his purple wrapped, receive me, Lord, by these his thorns give me his other crown. And as to other souls, I preach thy word, be this my text, my sermon, to mine own, therefore that he may raise the Lord throws down. Now there are a lot of other moments in this, other things that pushed me and drew me, and I won't go into them right now, but what I saw was that this who was love, a love utterly outside me, that this who actually loved me, that this who desired to love desired me to love whom in return, and finally, through, though this dawned on me only gradually, that this was the key to my genuinely loving anyone, including myself or anyone else. 
Now, somewhere in the midst of this, I heard that the Bible actually could be useful in this exploration. <laughs> that it tells the story of the God who loves you and gives you mysterious power to love him back, although that power will never be yours, which is the whole paradox of it. The Bible tells this story uniquely, the way no other text does, and that's why we immerse ourselves in it. At some point, it occurred to me that these words of loving the Lord your God with all your soul strength and mind um, were from the Bible. So I got a Bible, and I looked it up, genius that I was, where Jesus quotes it in Luke 10. And from there, I went to what he quotes in Leviticus, and from there I thought, wow, where does this come from? And I went to Moses and the law and worked back to the Red Sea and then was at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. And I saw that this was the hand of love making the creation and creating human beings to fill it. And I saw that all love begins in the love of God, which is God's love for us. The created order itself is an act of love. The beauty and magnificence of the cosmos called into being by a God who must bring it into being in order to be true to his own nature. I saw that this love is woven into every cell of every creature of flesh and every strand of every tree and plant, forged and layered into every cliff and pebble. I saw that this love is the power because of which the organization of the universe coheres, which St. Paul identifies explicitly with the second person of the Trinity the Logos of God, the pre-existent and eternal Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in the middle of all of this, I saw this love gathering a people for love's sake in Israel and in the church. And sometime in the course of this, I understood that this love was God, this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I saw the myriad crazy ways people responded to the love of God with betrayal and denial and bargaining. And yet sometimes they just stopped and they gave up and they got on their knees like John Donne and they gave in as if God were supplying them with the love they needed to love him. And it suddenly occurred to me that this God might supply me with the love I needed not only to love him, but someone else. It was crazy, but it made complete sense. I mean, if I was in awe of a sunset, how could I not be in awe of the one who made it? And so I did discover that once you start loving God, you can actually begin to love someone else in a sort of halting kind of way. And it was true. My relationship with this young woman got easier. I was more able to love her and to begin to admit, sort of, that I was a little wrong. And sometimes. And to see her three-dimensionally, not just as an instrument for the gratification of my needs and ego. And something else happened, which is the more I spent time in this word of the scripture, the more the love that was helping me love acquired a human face, acquired the face of Jesus. He was not yet my Lord and Savior, but he was my teacher. And I wanted more of what he was teaching, because when I was in his presence, I felt alive in a way I never had. In short, I wanted more love. Now, as I say, I don't want you to be under any impression that I was improving as a human being. <laughs> Not in the least. I tasted love and yearned for love and found myself beginning actually to love, but wrath always provides a way out of virtue, <laughs> usually through pride. 
remember, I was still treading water in the abyss, so to speak. And so here, I imagine myself now not as a great poet or dramatist, but as a theologian, a connoisseur of God, even though I did not fully believe in him yet, but that didn't stop me. My execrable pride was as that of the fabled cat who studied ornithology. In other words, I read a lot about God and thought a lot about God and sort of got on one knee before him even as I planned my escape. But then I made the mistake, remember C.S. Lewis says a young atheist can never be too careful of his reading. I made the mistake of picking up C.S. Lewis for a screw tape and then a great divorce and I compounded all of this by going back to church because I couldn't get the second commandment out of my mind, love thy neighbor as thyself. And who is my neighbor, says the lawyer. And it turns out, as Jesus tells that story in the 10th chapter of Luke, the neighbor looks like a really scary homeless guy beaten and bloody and lying by the side of the road. This is your neighbor, so go and do likewise. Now, in our neighborhood in New York, there were plenty of scary homeless guys, and there was a lot of craziness and violence. But I did notice where it was being healed, there were communities of blessing that were churches, like St. Mark's in a Bowery, or Dorothy Day's Catholic Worker, or the soup kitchen at the Carpatho Russian Orthodox Church on Tompkins Square. And these places actually helped and prayed for and with the people they served. And I wondered if I could find a church like that. And at the same time, I really hoped I didn't find a church like that. Because <laughs> it scared me. Uh, one day I was, you know, we were in a very fancy parish in Manhattan who will be nameless and witnessed on Monday, Thursday evening at the reading of the gospel, the, the ushers assisting a drunk homeless man out of the nave. And I thought I had enough evidence then never to go back to church, that it was all hypocrisy. Remember, I was a theologian by now. And, um, and then uh, we wound up at All Angels on the Upper West Side. And uh, the rest is history, right? I mean, it, it just burgeoned once Carol Anderson got there and there was just all kinds of stuff that happened and for some reason we thought, let's open our doors and just eat with people in the neighborhood. And so they came and we sat like this, family style, and homeless people and crazy people and all sorts of other people came and sat down and ate with us. And it was Jesus I was seeing. I had to admit it. The stranger, the neighbor, and love in action. I mean drunks and prostitutes and crazy people and they started not only you know eating in the program but then they started running the program and participating in the program and joining the church and being confirmed and something weird kept happening which is that their love started coming back at me because when they would tell their stories what stunned me was how so many of them said it was Jesus who had saved them and that was what killed me they were saved what did they mean Saved. I mean, for God's sake, they didn't even have teeth, most of them, or clothes, or scents, but somehow they were free inside, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, as the song goes. The colic kept running through my head, O oh God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature. And that's what I saw when I saw them. 
And they said it wasn't just God who had done this, it was Jesus. So again, I went back to the scriptures and heard his names, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Lamb of God, and so on. And I heard the creeds again and I began participating in church and hearing all of that language as a love song. Sort of like in Cyrano de Bergerac, you remember that play, 19th century play of a, uh, a really dopey, handsome guy uh, who is in love with Roxanne. His name is Christian and he has a good friend who is phenomenally ugly because he has just a monumentally large nose and he is also a brilliant wordsmith. And Christian asks Cyrano to give him the language he needs in order to woo Roxanne. And so that's sort of the way I was, standing in church, worshiping God, using someone else's words to approach the one I loved. And so what happened in that was that I learned that this God who loves me and makes me want to love others was Jesus Christ crucified. And I learned it through the neighbor. Not the neighbor I wanted, but the neighbor who actually looked like Christ crucified, who in turn strongly suggested that I too was beaten and lying by the side of the road, or possibly far worse. Now, fortunately, where there is wrath, there is hope. You see, because I found a way out of this bind too. Just as before I'd been prideful about which God I was worshiping, so I was now prideful about the neighbor who worshiped him. One day, uh, Betsy and I hadn't really talked about faith, and so uh, we went to St. Mark's in the Bowery, which was actually quite close to our house uh, for, for a morning, and, uh, and I was hoping she would be impressed. And, um, and we got there, it was a beautiful morning in early May in Eastertide, and, uh, and, the, and it turned out there was a woman, a young lay woman, who was going to preach the homily, and, and she came in, and she was late, and she had two German shepherds, and she looked really strung out, and all I could think of was, oh great, you know. Here we are, I'm listening to somebody strung out on drugs, I've got to, and you know, is this really what I have to put up with? We should just leave and go to St. Bart's or something, right? And in that moment, she started to talk and she said, you know, I'm really late, I know, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be preaching on, but I just want to say that the line in John's gospel keeps coming back at me. That, uh, that the light uh, was surrounded by darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And she said, and that's the story of my life. And I trust him, because as big a mess as I am, I know he's keeping me alive. And she looked straight at me. And afterwards, we went out to Tompkins Square Park and talked a little bit about it. And I started to realize that I was stuck with the neighbor. And then one day, I was hit by the last piece, which was the inalienable thought that the neighbor was, in fact, the enemy. 
and the other way around. My enemy was my neighbor. I wondered about this, and I really started doing research in the passion narratives. I just read them hungrily, and the thing that killed me was Simon Peter in the, in the high priest's courtyard. How he went out and wept bitterly. The best of intentions, the best friend, who now was the enemy to this Lord Jesus. And the cross itself, Father, forgive. How Jesus loved his enemy. And I realized that Simon Peter took that on after the resurrection and understood that God had used all of that to save him and then went throughout the known world, showing up in rooms full of perfect strangers and saying, I want to tell you the story about how I ran out on my best friend in his darkest hour and he used it to save my life. And then I started to understand that I was the enemy. Now, I wasn't really ready to admit that very much. Again, my wrath got stoked up because, you know, you can find it in your hearts to love just about anyone, even those who trouble you, as long as Satan can keep one particular person you hate and deserve. <laughs> because as long as you have that one special enemy, you don't need the cross, you see? And in this case, it was my dad, still. And the word kept coming back to me, son, your dad is your neighbor. But I said, but he's my enemy. And he said back to me, love him. How does this work, I thought. And then the words just flooded into me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So I engaged in a vigorous conversation with the one who pretended to be powerful enough to save me. It was my last ditch attempt as I was sinking in that abyss and gasping for air. Are you saying, Lord, that I am your enemy like Peter? And the Lord said, yes, you win the prize. And I said, and the cross for me? He said, yes, another prize. I said, why? He said, because you have a tendency to sacrifice others as payment for your own sin. You blame them for your problems. Sooner or later, this is going to kill you because you'll run out of victims. And then all that will be left is yourself. And then you know what happens because it's happening to your dad. So stop and love him because I've made the sacrifice. And so that's when I got the whole story of love at the top of the stairs. I, uh, there he is. I got married and and yes, my dad lived for 16 more years, and by the end of it all, we admitted we really loved each other very much. So that's the most challenging part. Loving God leads to the neighbor, and loving the neighbor will always lead you to the enemy, and in loving the enemy, you will always be reminded that Christ loved you when once you were the enemy. And even now, sometimes when you are, even though now you have been brought very near, 
Ask Betsy and she will tell you I am still thick-headed and short-tempered and pompous and easily offended and proud and aimless and on some level I still don't want to look at deeply hurt. I don't really like meeting the neighbor, especially when they're inconvenient or don't look like me or are really, did I say inconvenient? <laughs> and I can't stand my enemies which is really funny because now I am in the House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church. <laughs> but once you know this, you can't do anything else but go and do likewise. In your halting and stumbling way, trusting that the Lord who used someone to get to you may use you to bless someone else. So in the meantime, stand by the cross so that when someone stumbles in and finds it, maybe they'll have someone they can talk to who will understand.